Hi everyone, this is International Society of Hypertension Podcast. I'm Associate Professor Francine Marques from Monash University, Australia, and my co-host is Dr. Augusto Montesano from the University of Glasgow, Scotland. Welcome back to our International Society of Hypertension Mentoring and Training Committee uh, podcast. And today we will speak with Dr. Camila Venceslao, who is Associate Professor in the Department of Cell Biology and Anatomy at the University of South Carolina School of Medicine. Camila and her group works on the field of vascular biology and cardiovascular diseases, where she focuses on immune system and many other interesting aspects of vascular diseases. Camila has published successfully in many top journals of our field. And what's more interesting for us today here is that she's leading a diverse team from different parts of the world with different scientific backgrounds. And her experience, as I mentioned, as a mentor for all these uh, amazing trainees is going to be one of the topics of our interesting uh, talk and discussions today. So Camila, with that, I just wanna say thank you very much for accepting our invitation and welcome to our podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you, Guti Francini, for the invitation. I really, really appreciate it. Perfect. So Camila, to get us started, can you just like share with us a little bit of your story and how uh, did you get involved with hypertension research? Yes, of course. So the study of a cardiovascular physiology and vascular physiology in general has been my main research interest since I was an undergraduate student. So during that time, I, I was a nice student né, with Dr. Luciana Venturini Rousson during my PhD, and I learned a lot of the mechanisms of uh, OABAIN né, in hypertension. That's, this was my first contact with hypertension during my master's in my PhD. And as part of my master's degree, I also had the opportunity to to travel to Spain and to work with Dr. Mercedes Salais and Anna Briones. And I learned uh, with them how to perform vascular function and resistance arteries. That was my first contact with the microcirculation. And subsequently, I took that expertise né, to back to Brazil. And because of that, Luciana and I, we were the pioneers to study isolate the artery, resistance arteries in Brazil. That was in early 2000, was 2005. And that we had a lot of fun. And after that, after the completion of my master's degree, I, as I said, I continued my PhD with Luciana, but I also had a, a co-mentor that was Dr. Wagner Antunes. Wagner Antunes, if you know, he worked with Julian Payton from the University of Bristol and also Benedito Machado from the University of uh, São Paulo as well. Uh, Wagner's expertise was in sympathetic activity, and because of that, during my PhD, I also expanded my research from the vascular physiology to, and I learned how to measure vascular and sympathetic, sympathetic activity as well. So Luciana and Wagner, they provide me with a broad understanding 
cardiovascular physiology, né? Em what it says, hemodynamics and autonomic regulation. In uh, hypertension, several models of hypertension, such as SHR, né? that's a genetic model of hypertension, or a DAO salt, a salt dependent hypertension. And with that, with all this knowledge that I obtained during my master's and PhD from Luciana and Wagner, I was able to, 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 to perform, né, to get the opportunity to join Dr. Clinton Webb Laboratory at that time at Medical College of Georgia, in Georgia, uh, in uh, US. And with Clinton, I was able to expand my my research as well in vascular physiology, and I was trained to be an independent investigator. And during that time, I also met Cam. Cam is my husband, Cameron McCart. He's also a doctor and he's my main collaborator. Together, we had two beautiful kids, our baby boy Noah, he's seven months old and he's going to turn eight months soon. And our beautiful daughter, Emma, as well, she's five years old. So Clinton, when I was with Clinton, I was, Clinton was more than a mentor for me. Clinton was a father, right? Clinton was the most altruistic person, perhaps, that I have ever met. With him, I learned that I had a, a voice, I had a voice as a woman in science, and I was able to fly, right? With Clinton, I was able to fly in science. And with Clinton, I became an independent investigator. So with that time with Clinton, I was able to obtain several fellowships, including uh, a postdoc fellowship from American Heart. And subsequently, I, I also obtained a um, fellowship from NIH called NIH K99R00. And with that, with that grant, I was able to start my own laboratory at the University of Toledo, a College of Medicine in Ohio. So in Toledo, né, when I moved from Georgia to Ohio, in Toledo, I joined a group of experts in the gut physiology and genetics. Specifically was Dr. Bina Joe and Vijay Kumar. And with them, I had a close collaboration and I was able to learn a lot of about um, the new words in microbiota and microbiome. And in Toledo, Ohio, I spent three years, three solid years, and I was glad that I went there because in addition to meet that, the experts like uh, Dr. Joe and, and Kumar, I also, as I mentioned, I expanded my research. I learned a lot of about gut physiology. And because of that, I was able to obtain my first R01. It's an important grant here in US right, to support the PIs laboratory. So at the same time, when I received my first R1, Clinton, he was invited to be a um, head of a new center at the University of South Carolina uh, School of Medicine. And because he wanted to start from the scratch, he, he uh, was supposed to start the center from the scratch, right? He invited uh, Cameron and, and I to, to join his new center. 
and to help him to build this new cardiovascular translational center, right? And, uh, and then Cameron and I, we accepted this new challenge because we wanted to return and to perform uh, more vascular research, right? And we also liked the challenge to start a new center method from the scratch. And um, in Toledo, I had, as I mentioned, I had a great, a good experience in terms of research, right? Because as I mentioned, we learned a lot of, but for was a great opportunity that Cameron and I, we couldn't um, let this opportunity go. So we felt that we could contribute more with the center. So in terms, as I mentioned, my first contact with ISH, or International Society of Hypertension, was actually when I was, when I was in Milan, in Italy, in a conference for ASH, for European Society of Hypertension in 2011. And when I was there, I met several members from ISH, right? But I didn't have any close contact with the members at that time. This, the close contact with the members from ISH was only when I was in, in Clinton's lab laboratory. And then when I started attending um, uh, high blood pressure research, then now the constant hypertension. And I attended several, at that time, we used, we used to attend several satellite symposia, I think it's to call satellites, mini symposium that were sponsored by ISH. So we, I used to love that, that mini symposium because I was a trainee and we had several... Uh, contact with other uh, uh, members of each society discuss about hypertension was I really enjoyed. We had a lot of fun and I learned a lot of. And in 2017, another contact with each was when I was invited to discuss about my research and our research was highlighted in the section called Spotlight of the Months. And I'm glad that my last month, actually, my students' research was also highlighted with ISH. And, 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 and that was, that's it. That was my brief, my story with ISH and hypertension. I hope it was okay. That's perfect. And it's good to know that, like, one, academia was very productive to you because we're not able to, you're not only able uh to become like this uh, great, amazing scientist that you are, but you also were able to find love and uh, and have your kids and everything. So that's like a good, I think, like success story uh, for you, Camila. Congratulations! And it's very nice yes. to hear <laughs> that um, you participate in a lot of the ISH uh, um, activities that we do uh, for uh, early careers and like you know students and everything so it's good to see that like everything that ish does can have a, an impact in people in a positive impact thank Definitely. you for, uh, for that <laughs> so camilla uh our next question is more like related to career development let's say so uh people um as you progress you have to participate in committees or either at university that you are or ish or any other uh, professional society so what's your view in participation in those committees in terms of helping you to advance your career? 
that's is fundamental. I think when I was early in my career, when I was a postdoc, you're moving né, from being a postdoc to a PI, I or early in my, in general, early in my career, I was so focused on trying to establish my own research that maybe I, did, I was not able to value a lot of serving on on a committee, right? I was I, I was trying to focus more on research, but that's that where mentors come in handy to help you and say, no, I think committees are important, you should participate, but you need pick or choose the right ones, right? And that when Clinton and other mentors as well, they help me a lot and they guide me to pick the right committees that wouldn't burn my research, right? And I still use the mentors <laughs> to try to guide me which, which are the best committees, the committees that I, I share similar, similar goals, right? Or similar interests. So right now I learned that committees are fundamental for the career, that's no question from not only committing in this participating or being a member in the committees in societies, but also in the university is important here, at least in US, for tenure and promotion, for service. This is fundamental, right, for us. But also for networking. So the main, the key word for me when I when I participate in committees is networking. And right now, I am very, very, very careful only to serve on committees that I care deeply about or which there is a skill that I can learn or something new that I can learn, right? And or, or also that I can, I can use my background to help someone. Right. So to try to serve on committees that I try to serve on committees that I share similar, similar interests. Right. And I think that is essential to a faculty or a trainee, right, to choose or to serve on a particular committee that you have the same skill sets. That's it. I think align, aligning your interests with the right committee is perhaps the key or the, yeah, is the key. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you. So, Camila, now like switching a little bit about your mentorship and mentoring experiences. So that's one of my favorite questions. And I think I, I say that every single time that I'm recording or doing this podcast. So if you can define mentorship, uh, your mentorship experience in one wor word, uh, which word would you use? Uh, a partnership. <laughs> that's can my you, word. Can you explain why? Yes, definitely. I think that mentoring in partnership like is a collective or a shared dream, right? Mentor, being a mentor in, in, with a mentee, you share the same dream, that it's a collective or a shared dream. So if you can, if the mentee, if when I if I knew that, if I could, I would have a variety of mentors, a constellation of mentors, right? So I would have a several partners, right? Because I think mentoring is so important because bring a um, huge diversity, right, of voice around you and on the table. So you can have several answers or several perspective to, to, to try to solve your problem or your issue. I think that's it's, it's fundamental because this is going to help you to decrease your 
uh, 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 make smaller your learning curve, right? So that's fundamental for a mentee because a mentor, the, the, the word of mentor, what, what mentor means is someone with expertise experience that this person is willing to share their expertise and experience with mentees. And this is so important because it's going to help the mentees to achieve their goals. And now, so you're not going to have the same mistakes, committing the same mistakes, right? And then this is going to help you to decrease your learning curve. This is fundamental. And because of that, mentees in general, they share the same network community or network of scientists. And this is fundamental to open uh, different doors for you. For this is, I think, so important. Mentor is so important. And this is a partnership because you share the same dreams. And, and Camila, when in your uh, career did you feel the need to have a mentor? Is this something that happened naturally or you kind of like collect and say like, I need a mentor right now. And then that's what I'm going to look for. Um, I think it was both actually. And, and I need a mentor all the time, actually. <laughs> so in terms of a, a, a academic career, right, I, I need and I still need different types of mentor. In my personal life, yes, right? However, in the when I was in the, in the beginning of my career, I remember very well when I started my PhD, I needed someone that she challenged me, right? I need someone that was used to... to, to to push me or challenge me all the time. And, uh, and, and I was lucky because I had the perfect mentor. I, I think you know her, Dr. Luciana Venturini Brusson. She was a challenger from the University of Sao Paulo in Brazil. She used to, to, to challenge me all the time. And then not only me, but all the main, other mentees as well, right? And uh, in general, the challenger or the, the, this type of mentor, they play devil's advocate, right? To challenge people, they have tough questions, but also at the same time, they encourage you to aim high and to push you further, right? To help to develop your own independence. So I think I, Luciana, I knew I, uh, I need a mentor because I had Luciana uh, challenge me all the time. And this was fundamental for me. However, at the same time, in parallel uh, to Luciana, as I mentioned before, we need a constellation of mentors. We need several mentors. So at the same time, I had um, other mentors because I think that mentor does not need to be a long-term commitment. Even one-time conversation can have a positive impact on mentee's career. So with that being said, for example, when I was a uh, PhD student finishing my PhD, I was not sure if I would uh, have my postdoc abroad or if I continue in Brazil. So I spoke with uh, Dr. Luis Brito and he, Dr. Brito at that time, he was the head of the biomedical science at the University of Sao Paulo. And I remember very well, he said to me, Camille, you know, I think you had a great potential and I think you need to acquire or to, to have this experience abroad based on his own experience because he had his, he, he, he performed his 
Paul's daughter, I think it was in California, he said, you should go, it's a great opportunity for you, you're going to learn a lot. Of. So that word from, from Brit was really important for me, and it was only one-time conversation, and for me, that was a major role as well, right? But in addition to to Brito and also to Luciana, I also had a, a, a great friend. She was a PhD student at that time as well, Dr. Gisele Kruger Couto. Now she's a, she's a doctor as well. She, was, she said to me, Camila, you need to go. You need to go to a postdoc abroad. You need to try. Né? You need to challenge yourself, right? Not only stay here. And perhaps you can return with more expertise or even stay in US. And I think Gisele, Brito, and Luciana at that time, they were in important mentors during my PhD. And also, of course, other mentors such as uh, Ana Paula Davel, she helped Dr. Rita Toss. So I think uh, we don't want, we, we need several mentors for in different phases of your career, right? We need actually constellation of mentor. And this is really, really important, as I mentioned, to decrease the, the the, 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 to decrease the time that we spend or to commit the same mistakes, right? We need several mentors to make you successful. I think no, it, it does. It does take a village. Yeah. <laughs> um, so now, Camila, thinking of you as a mentor now, so how is your uh, mentoring style and how do you help your mentees to achieve their goals? I am. Yeah, that's a tough question, right? I think I have like key depends of the mentees. I change a little bit the my my mentor style, but in general, I try to be the challenger as well, like Lu like Luciana was with me. I try to push uh, mentee. I ask hard questions, but at, at the same time, I try to be a um, a cheer, uh, uh, cheerleader, right? To the mentors, I try to say positive things. So I try to 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 make them. Uh, if they commit any mistakes, I say, "Hey, keep focus. Uh, this mistake is going to help you to grow." And I try to talk with them. And an, an example I had was Janelle. Edwards. Jonelle was my first PhD student when I was an assistant professor at the University of Toledo. Now she's a postdoc at Case Western in Ohio. So I, with Jonelle, I try to connect her with the world, right? I think that she, Jonelle needed to have shared the same uh, network that I used to have. And I used a lot of several tools that now, nowadays we have, for example, Twitter, but I also try to introduce Janelle to several PIs and big names in the field, such as Mary Lindsay, also Irv Zucker, that was the former editor-in-chief for the American uh, Journal of Hyper... Uh, I'm sorry, to AJP, Harting <laughs> Cirque. And also I introduced Janelle to several... PIs, and I think that was great for Janelle. She learned the, how important it was to have a great network to support her career as well. And that was um, a, a type of mentor that she was trying to be to Janelle, because I, I, I think Janelle also wanted to be an educator. 
And I, I, I remember one mistake that I committed with Junelle, I was trying to make sure Junelle wanted to be like me, right? Like a mini me. Say, hey, Junelle, you need to be a vascular uh, physiologist. You need to be because I can see potential in you. Please continue in the area. But that I learned that we, we don't need another mini me, right? <laughs> we are an, another person that is going to be the same as me, right? I'm a mini. That's it. I don't need another mini Camila. <laughs> so now I learn with that. So I try to remember when I, I mean, I have my mentees not to, that they are not going to be the same as me, right? If I try to, to be a, the same mentor for all of them, I, I, I can see that they have individual characteristics, right? Change, change between them. However, I try to establish clear expectation for all my trainees that's it that's the perhaps the type of mentor i'm trying to be it's hard to keep be the same but <laughs> but an example that i could have is Janelle. i remember uh, i had like he she's now in a postdoc i think i was successful with Janelle, right she's in a really good institution that's um, Case Western, but I remember I was trying to convince Janelle to stay in the same area, <laughs> and I and that I learned. No, I, uh, she she need to be herself. She need to choose there she wants. I will support her regardless of there she's she wants to continue her career. And and that shows like how the relationship is always like a a learning experience, right? So. It's not you teaching them or passing them the skills or the experience that you have, but also you're learning yourself how to drive through uh, the pathway of mentoring and being a mentor. So it's it's good. It's good. Growth goes both ways, I think. Yes, and definitely. So Camila, now like, um, so in terms of the mentee, what kind of characteristics or um, traits do you think a mentee should have in order to have this uh, perfect or successful relationship with their mentor? Yes, I think that's a good question, Guto, because in general, we see a lot of uh, articles or a discussion about how the main mentor should be, right? In general, we don't talk a lot, a lot, a lot how the mentee should be, right? I think that's a good question. I think in addition, of course, OPI is like, like the, the, the mentees to produce high quality results with integrity. The best mentees are engaged, engaged and motivated. That's for sure. There's no doubt. And I really like the mentees when they come to the lab with enthusiasm. They are excited. They want to have fun. It's not your only work. And they want to move the projects forward. They really want. They come with questions. I think I really like the, the mentees when they come with the questions. They want their, they are really enthusiastic about their project, right? And um, they, they don't only complain about the, this about people about what's going to happen what's happening in the lab no they come with solutions what for things that's happening in in the lab in general they are energy donors not energy recipients right i like this i read this in some place i don't remember but they <laughs> are energy donors i really like that right and they they give a lot of 
energy to us as well, right? And I think in general, um, mentorship or mentor relationship is a symbiotic, like similar to microbiota and the host, right? Is a, Francine knows well, right? It's a symbiotic experience that is important for both for mentor and mentee. And this requires investment, a lot of a huge investment, a lot of energy, right? So the mentees, and I think in, in long term, right, they also should return this type of service, if you can say is a service or investment and make an investment in another promising individual as well, right? And they're going to notice that the best mentees, they come into the laboratory with enthusiasm, they are motivated, they come with questions, they challenge you, and they bring solutions. That's are the best mentees for me. And Camila, you traveled a lot. So uh, you went to different environments, uh, different labs. Uh, I was happy to hear that you worked with Ana Briones, uh, which is another researcher that I, I work with, like in uh, from Spain, and I had the opportunity to work with her, and she's amazing. She's a very good friend. Um, <clears throat> so what helped you? to identify these different environments. And I, actually the question is more like, how somebody who is getting ready to go to a new lab or to assume like a new position, what they should look at in terms of that environment for them to be a hundred, not 100% sure, but to be sure that that environment is going to be beneficial to them and is going to help them to move forward. Mm. For me, the most important aspect for to identify a good uh, training, right, environment is uh, check how many trainees have met their goals, right? For example, check how many trainees uh, became a faculty or went to an industry in general match their goals that's the most important aspect and for these also i would suggest to the candidate right or that applying to a new institution or to a new lab to talk with the past if possible and the present trainees far from the <laughs> far from the piano right or also, if it's for a faculty, also talk with the other faculties, right? Try to reach a past uh, the former faculties, right? Or faculties that moved to a different institution, right? Also try to reach the faculties or the past and present trainees and talk with them, ask different questions. How was the PI? How was the chair of the department? And, and the, but the main thing is check how many trainees have met their goals. I think that's the main factor. You need to check this. And you are a very easygoing person to talk to. Uh, let's say if you are in a conference, like you're one of the the easiest person to go and chat like you make people feel so comfortable and you're so welcoming that uh, I'm pretty sure trainees are love to come and talk to you and love to come and talk to you we but not to everybody <laughs> yeah, but not everybody's like that and <laughs> when you're trying to find uh, a new position or you're trying to 
discuss, share your data with other researchers and conferences or any other places, intimidation may come into play. You may be too shy or you may be so nervous that that person is like, oh my God, I need to talk to that big researcher and you have this whole image in your head and he's going to hate me, it's going to be embarrassing and you become very intimidated. So how, what advice you give to people to overcome intimidation and put yourself out there? Yes, that's not cheese. Yes. <laughs> but I'm, yes, my suggestion is first tell yourself that although that these big names, right, these big people, they were like you in the past, right? They were trainees, they were they they also were in the same situation that you are now, right? So my suggestion is try to be confident right? Try to be confident and they are going to understand because they were like you. They were trainees in the past as well. So believe in yourself. That's it. That's my suggestion. Just try to be confident and, and they're going to understand, I'm sure. <laughs> so, Camila, now switching to uh, our last topic, uh, which is diversity and inclusion. And I think like it's a very important uh, a topic of very important discussions that we should have in science. So our first one is like, what do you think is the biggest barrier around diversity and inclusion in science? And how do you think we can overcome those uh, barriers in hypertension research? Yes, I think that's um, definitely we should discuss this more and all the time. But there is a um, there is no doubt there is that's increase in diversity and inclusion as well. It's fundamental to improve innovation, creativity in all uh, several universes, several societies, several institutions. They are investing, they are hiring more uh, minorities, women, right? And that's a wonderful thing that's happening nowadays. And, and I hope that they invest even more, right? However, now we are facing another problem. For example, yesterday, actually it was yesterday, I posted a small article in the Twitter, né? and it was discussed about the same problem, right? That we are facing now, that after we hire the minorities, we need to be aware the talking about the talking position or the symbolic positions. What's happening is that the universities, the societies, and the institutions, they are, they are inviting minorities and women to participate or to be a member in the committees, to represent the universe. However, and they want to appear fair and balanced, right? However, what is, is happening is that they just want, it's just to show, they just want to show they have minorities, they increase the number of the minorities and represented minorities as well right but the thing is is this is the dark side of the excellence right and uh this type of investment is made just as i said just be for show right because the minorities and the underrepresented minorities their opinions are not taken or heard and they are in general the minorities they are burning with more and more work that's the main problem we are facing nowadays. And I think that Ishi or other societies, big 
big societies as well, they need to be aware about this new problem, right? Or the dark side of the excellence, right? When you want to increase excellence, we are in increasing diversity, we are hiring minorities, but we need to make sure to avoid symbolic or token positions, right? So you make sure we heard them and we, we take their opinion seriously. Yeah, it has to be meaningful. And I think like a, there is an example that I, uh, I was talking to someone the other day. It was an application that we had in the UK and they made very clear uh, there was a paragraph where you can totally see it was the perfect example you just said. They said, oh, this grant will give preference to uh, members of the LGBTQ plus I, um, members of like uh, other um, minorities and, and everything. So they listed every single minority in the paragraph. And you can totally see it was just to check that they were being open-minded or they're being, uh, as I said, it was just to show. It just wasn't meaningful. And just, I think yes, just symbolic because they need to be fair and balanced. But these, we need to be careful with this type of uh, what's happening right now. We need to make sure minorities and women, underrepresented minorities, right? They are heard. That's the main yeah. thing. They have voice and their voices are important. And uh, Camila, as a um, successful woman, young woman in science, uh, do you have any advice of others that may be in the same situation as you with like uh, two kids, uh, married, like with like a lot of like uh, family, uh, not challenges, but family uh, situations that will impact your uh, career development or your work? Mm, yes, I think my, uh, yeah, definitely. My main suggestion is, I think I mentioned before, but is, I'm going to repeat because I think it's so important. Make a constellation of mentors. So have several Clintons, Rians, Stephanies, like Marilyn's or Gutus, Francine's, Stella's, Brains, a constellation of mentors in your life, in a different in different levels of career and aspects of your life, your life as well, right? Have a mentor mentor colleagues yourself as well. You're going to feel good. It's important. You're going to feel useful, right? It, this is really important for your career. And I think if you have a mentors, that's going to make your life e way, way, way easier. It's going to help you to achieve your goal faster as well, right? As you know, science is an uh, amazing journal. I love that, that, that. We should embrace it, right? It's not always easy. In, uh, you are going to face a lot of uh, disapproval. People are going to, to disapprove your, uh, what you say, your actions. But I think you just keep going and stick with your dreams. And that's it. And perhaps, like we always say, never give up. And make sure you have a constellation of mentors. That's my main suggestion for young investigators and for everyone it's important we have several types of mentors and to help you in in your life in your career and totally agree camila and for our last question and then uh, i'll let you go <laughs> um, <laughs> so now let's think about covid19 and how the pandemic 
uh, hit many researchers, not only early career or young researchers, but also like every single one. Uh, we had to endure lab closures, uh, lack of uh, equipment or um, reagents to work with. Like, so everybody was hit pretty hard. So from what you've seen, and you moved in the middle of a pandemic as well. So you moved labs and universities in the middle of a pandemic. So from this experience, um, what do you think that we can do as a community uh, to better support junior researchers or researchers in general during this uh, to catch up after? I'm saying after, because I'm hoping this pandemic's finishing. So <laughs> after this uh, COVID-19 pandemic. Yes, I think, Guto, the two most important aspects, in my opinion, would be adjustment and flexibility, right? I think adjusting, make adjustment, right? For example, from societies such as each your uh, universe as well, being willing to adjust deadlines relative to their careers for uh, the uh, young investigators and for those that are finishing their contract as well. It's important allowing junior faculty taking more time to prepare their, for example, tenure promotion package to apply and to submit as well. And extensions for deadline is, is fundamental as well. As well. Universities could also help the most um, impact early career research by decreasing uh, loads or in teaching and administrative obligations as well. I think it's important and also in, in, in being more flexible overall. And for the researchers with the collaborators being willing to share, né? like you said, more reagents or uh, equipment, everything, because it's not easy, right? So we, we see now as an, I have a new lab, moving is not easy, especially in the middle of the COVID, it's hard to buy things, I think, Flexibility, flexibility and adjustment are the main words that we important to support young investigators or senior investigators as well. Perfect. And, and you're right. I think like during the pandemic, uh, a strong aspect that came out of uh, many different labs in science and universities is the community aspect of it. So people helping each other. Um, so Camila, so this reached the end of our uh, interview. I'm very happy that I got to do this with you. Like I was counting the days uh, to interview you. Uh, I'm pretty sure many people are going to love to hear your stories and uh, your opinions. And with that, like, thank you so much for being here with us and giving us a little bit of your time. No, thank you. Thank you for this opportunity and for the time to talk with me. I know it's late. No, it's not late right now. You're in Canada, but <laughs> actually, thank you, good. Thank you for your time and thank you, especially for doing this wonderful work, uh, work supporting women in academia. I know you do a lot of your, uh, this, your part. It's a wonderful work that you have done. I, I follow you as well. Thank you very much. You and Francine as well for the invitation. Thank oh, you, I appreciate it. Thank you, thank you, Camila. <laughs> we love to pay it forward and uh, we love to see people getting it where they should be. So uh, thank you again and uh, hope to see you soon. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to our interview. If you'd like more tips on mentoring, subscribe to our podcast for more interviews with senior and emerging leaders. Stay safe, open-minded, and kind.